Lord, we count it, as always, a very sweet blessing to, um, to gather, to have unity in Christ that we don't have to muster and create, but it's a gift, and we preserve it by going to the Word together. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful um, for families gathering, for kiddos here, uh, not just looking to be entertained, but um, to, to go to the Word and to, to hear more about you and your will. So, Lord, my prayer is that you would bless our time tonight. Um, I pray that any plans that we have uh, uh, of our own, that we would be willing to submit any and all parts of it to, to your will and to your design. I pray that you would speak to us tonight in, uh, from Exodus and, and seeing how, how you had a plan for Pharaoh and how you had a plan for Moses and how you had a plan for Aaron and how you have a plan for Israel and how you have a plan for us. Lord, I pray for specific understanding in the Word. I pray for good conversation. I pray for uh, deep questions and rich answers that can only come from you and by the work of your Spirit. Uh, We love you, Lord. Um, We submit to you and we humble ourselves before you tonight. And I look to you for all guidance. Uh, We thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all turn to Exodus 5. If this is your first time with us on Wednesday nights over the last few years, um, we have generally, grab that door, we have uh, just gone through, uh, we started with Genesis, which is the beginning, first book of the Bible, and we went through Genesis and spent a few years there, and tonight we will be uh, in Exodus. This is our fourth or fifth week in Exodus, and we're generally just going through a verse at a time, chapter at a time, uh, asking the Lord to show us uh, the gospel in the Old Testament. And so uh, it's a pretty sweet privilege to get to study all this. Tonight we're going to be in Exodus 5.10 through 7.13. And if you will look at Exodus 5.10, we'll start there. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Now, how in the world did Israel get into such a predicament? What happened for this uh, slavery to become more bitter and more difficult and more harsh? What, what happened? Say that again. Moses went to Pharaoh. And why did Moses go to Pharaoh? So... So they did what God told them to do, and things got worse. Is that that where we're at? Okay. They did what God told them to do, and things got worse. Now, I want to back up a few steps here and just kind of climb back into the story. Why were their conditions worse in the first place in Egypt? Why is Israel in Egypt? Joseph moved them there. Okay. And what happened? Uh, They were in the land of Goshen. Things were nice. They were well supplied. And then what happened? They started populating like rabbits. And uh, as they populated like rabbits, what happened uh, with the leadership in Egypt? Got scared because there's so many of them. And there was a new Pharaoh. And who did the new Pharaoh not know about? Now, if he had known about Joseph, what difference would it have made? 
Yeah, Joseph, what did Joseph do for Egypt? Yeah, he saved him. He saw them through one of the worst plagues the world had ever seen. And he, by way of Egypt, ended up giving care to the whole world and therefore gaining great uh, ground for Egypt and seeing them through this hard season. It was seven years of famine and then se- seven years of good stuff and good times and then seven years of famine. And because of good planning and order and attention to detail and insight and being thorough, they were able to get through it. But that guy, Joseph, was forgotten by this new Pharaoh. And so they're in Egypt and they're making bricks without straw at this point. So what has happened is God has come in and said, I've heard your cry which is good news, that God hears our cry and he hears, he hears uh, when our conditions are bad. And, and he says, I will deliver you out of Egypt. And so uh, we see God intervene, but things get worse first. And it's sort of confusing. But a few questions I want to look at. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? For his own glory? in order that his purpose in election might continue? Why else would God harden Pharaoh's heart? To show that salvation was not according to what? Not according to man, not according to human will or exertion, but according to what? Yeah, God who calls. Romans 9 says the calling one. Not just the call, but the calling one. It's up to God. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart for his own glory so that he would show that it was not according to human will or exertion, but according to him who calls. It puts all of the work of salvation on God, a very sovereign God who lovingly and mercifully and gracefully saves his people. Is Pharaoh responsible for his actions? Okay, is he responsible for his hard heart? Okay, so God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? And Pharaoh's responsible for his hard heart, right? How does that work? What is the word? Let's see who was paying close attention that we came up with last week to help explain this dynamic. Close. Antinomy. There you go. Autonomy, we could maybe make that work, but, um, but yeah, antinomy. And... Uh, um, antinomy. So, do y'all remember what antinomy was? What, what that word means? Now, I, that's not just close. That's spot on. Um, uh, it's always good to take notes because when you have questions like that, you're able to refer to your notes. I don't always remember everything. So, everyone should take notes like Linda. Um, a contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. What it means is you have antinomy is describing a situation where you have these two things that look like they don't go together. But guess what? This is God's breathed out word. So if they're in here together, they go together. There's no need for us to say, oh, well, let's separate it out. Um, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who spent one evening in his study with a razor blade going through the Bible and cutting out the things that didn't make sense. That's not what we're called to do. This, this thing, antinomy, helps us to understand when you have two things that seem separate, they seem perfectly logical, and then when you put them side by side, they're really hard to reconcile. They go together, and you should leave them as they are. And if you're operating within a paradigm where they can't go together, you're operating within a, a faulty paradigm because God's design is that these things go together. Is it mysterious? Yes, absolutely. There's no need to try to undo all of the mystery of God because that would make you God, not Him. And so when you have these things that are seemingly contradictory yet make perfect sense in themselves and they're sitting side by side in Scripture, um, antinomy is the word that helps us to understand that dynamic and knowing that we don't have to break it apart and explain away all the mystery. And it's not an excuse for lazy theology. It's actually an encouragement, as Romans 14 says, to be fully convinced as to what you believe and not lackadaisical, lazy, and mediocre and lukewarm in your belief. So then last week in verses 3 through 9 of Exodus 5, we had to ask this really hard question. And the hard question that we ran across was, 
Are we okay with being treated worse for a season if it should be God's will? That was the question that we came across because what happened for Israel, God's chosen nation among all the earth whom he loved as a, as a father, whom he shepherded as a flock in need of this great shepherd. It was necessary by God's design that things get worse for them for a season, that they would be treated worse for a season for God to accomplish his purposes according to his plan and his will. And so this question comes up, would, would we be okay with that? Would we be okay with being treated worse for a season? Can you keep a sober mind when someone dismisses your God and how your God tells you to live? So if you were in a situation where you said, I can't do that because, well, my God says otherwise and someone dismisses you, can you keep a sober mind during that or do you want to punch them in the face? Because that's what happens a lot of times. Like, that's my God. And you kind of, you want to hit someone in the face and it's like, well, that doesn't add up because he also tells you to be patient, gentle, and loving, and kind, and long-suffering. But can you keep a sober mind when someone dismisses you? If your boss says, I want you to work on, during these hours from here on out and it affects your worship and the way that you lead your family and you say, you know what, my God says that I'm supposed to lead my family and I'm not going to dismiss what God has said so for work. Can you keep a sober mind during that? Can you stand firm in the truth during that? Are you okay with being treated bad if it should be the case? Can you continue in God-honoring diligence when for a season you're required to do more work with less resources? That happens a lot where things change, the work environment changes, the economy changes, and all of a sudden you're required to do more work with less resources. It's just like Israel and Egypt. Make the bricks without the straw. Now, they were doing it to purposefully oppress them. Some of you have been in situations where it's been done to purposefully oppress you. Sometimes it's just circumstance. But are, are, you, are you okay with being diligent in a God-honoring way even when you're required to do more work with less resources? These are very thought-provoking things that are coming up as we consider Israel's situation in Egypt. Now, we read verses 10 through 19 where it just goes from bad to worse. It's God has intervened, God has said what's going to happen, and all of a sudden Israel is being oppressed worse. Oh, that doesn't sound right. The, the oppression is, is, is increasing uh, for Israel. And in fact, they say, let us go worship our God. And the response in verse nine, uh, 17 is, you are idle. You are idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. When you want to go and worship your Lord or lead your family in worship, it's possible that you will be called idle or lazy at some point. Why don't you work on Sunday? Because you're lazy. You're idle. Well, well we go to corporate worship on that day. It's, it's a Sabbath. We rest as well. Um, so we see all the way through 19, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And the foremen who are put over the people are beaten the taskmasters are, getting, are being forced to be more bitter. There's this line of command, and you just see everybody under the top being treated worse and worse and worse. And if this guy's treated worse, he's definitely going to treat this guy worse. He's going to treat this guy worse. It's a mess. Um, and look at verse 20. Look what happens. They met Moses and Aaron. They being uh, the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks. They're in trouble because they're like, we're going to have to do just as much, if not more work with less resources. And they're going to beat us again if we don't. So they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. What, what were they going in to tell Pharaoh? Let my people go. And what did Pharaoh say? I don't even know your God. Who are you talking about? Like, remember, God is very humbly coming in as the God of the enslaved nation. That, that doesn't hold a lot of clout. That's like saying, I'm the CEO of the, the uh, tanked business, or I'm the, I'm the leader of the uh, team who only loses. It's, it's like this picture of, of why would God want to come in and be the, the God, the Father, the King of kings and Lord of lords over, over the enslaved nation? And so Pharaoh, very quickly in chapter 5, says, the, um, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. It's like, oh, well, that didn't go well. But it went exactly as God said it would. So um, God, uh, uh, the, the Lord um, uh, has told them to say something. And then the response from Pharaoh, when they were in talking to Pharaoh, was, I don't, I don't even know your God. 
So they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, these are the ones who are leading Israel. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Yikes. That is not a sober-minded, worshipful approach to the Lord. Um, Okay, let's take this uh, one little piece at a time. First, the Israelites are now upset because they're saying, way to go. You, You just practically put a sword in their hand to kill us with. You stirred the, the bee's nest, and now we're reaping this horrible whirlwind of, you, you should have just kept your mouth shut. That, that's what they're saying. Now, first I want to consider the role of the leader. It is difficult to lead people, especially people who are being afflicted because of their relationship with God. That's a really difficult place to lead people and to encourage people rightly and to love people with the truth when those people are being afflicted because of their relationship with God. Israel's being afflicted because they're God's nation. And God, why did they increase in number? That's that's what started this whole thing. Why did they increase in number? Because God said, "I I will bless you and multiply you as the number of the stars in the sky and the sand on the shores. God always keeps his promises. So they are in this hard circumstance because of God's blessing. And then God comes in and says, I will deliver you, and it gets worse. So um, it's very difficult to lead people, especially people who are being afflicted because of their relationship with God. There's great need for a sober mind. And in a sense, Israel turns on God a little bit by turning on God's appointed and sent leadership. That's what's happening here. They're going to Moses and Aaron heard from God. They took what God said, and they went and spoke God's words. And then Israel turns on Moses and Aaron, and in doing so, turns on God. Do y'all see that? It's sort of like, I'm not going to curse God, but I'll curse who God sent, is what's happening here. Um, what does Moses accuse God of? Evil. Okay, this is a low point. I think we can all agree For Moses' ministry, this was a low point. You don't accuse God of evil. Like, I don't want to be Captain Obvious here in the Bible study of Exodus. Don't accuse God of evil. That's not what he does ever. Never, ever. So don't ever accuse him of evil. Why did Moses accuse God of evil? Yeah, because Pharaoh didn't show favoritism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God, I look like a chump. Yep. Yeah. yeah there wasn't even any downtime. He go, they go into the meeting with Pharaoh, and it's like, that's probably pretty intense, only to walk out the door and know that there's already something that has happened where the taskmasters have gotten more angry and bitter. Word traveled quick, and all of a sudden, whoa, we're, we're, really, we're really in a hard situation. So um, uh, how does verse 23, I'll read it again, and as I read it, consider how does this verse show horrible short-sightedness? 523, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Yeah. Yeah, and what has God already said? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, God's done a lot thus far. And what did God say would happen when they went to Pharaoh? What's the surprise? Like, God said that would happen, right? 
Doesn't it just seem utterly ridiculous that God would say, this is what's going to happen, and the people would be so disgruntled that they would turn on their leadership, that the leadership would then turn on God, accuse God of being evil, and then saying, you didn't deliver us at all. Essentially, as a God, you stink. Low point. Not so good. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 The, in our sinful, fallen state, we have a tendency to say, "I'll say what I think is best, and then we'll all pursue it the way I think is best." It's just this really self-centered uh, movement of life. Um, so, just to be clear, why did Pharaoh respond the way he did? Yeah, because God hardened his heart. God, God said he's going to say no. So go ask, and he's going to say no. And then they left and said, why did he say no? He said no. What in the world? What are some of those things that the Lord has clearly revealed to us that when we find ourselves in the midst of them, we show our short-sightedness? The world hates us. What are they doing? They're hating us. Why don't they embrace us and cook us dinner? What else? Say that again. Kids. <laughs> Your kids don't obey? Um, Yeah, yeah. Kids don't obey. Marriage is hard. What else? Yeah. (laughs) When ugly stuff comes out of your mouth, people don't react well. That's... Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Like he just saw his hand. Yeah. Yeah, and disregarding his power. What are some other things that we find ourselves in the midst of that we know God said it was going to happen and we act like we never heard it from him? Uh huh. What might some of those trials be? Oh, fantastic. Well, let's just move on. Financial problems. Yep. 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 When your patience is tried, take all the opposites of the fruits of the Spirit, like when I'm tempted to not be gentle. I'm supposed to be gentle. When I'm tempted to not have joy, I'm supposed to be joyful. I'm tempted to show no self-control when it comes up. I'm supposed to show self-control. There's all of these instances where God has said these things will happen, and then we act like, I I never heard such a thing. What's going on here? The affliction, when you are reviled, thinking of do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Normally in the middle of the fiery trial, we're going, what is going on? It don't, God says, don't even act like it's strange. I told you it was going to happen. Um, when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. The spirit and the flesh are opposed to each other to keep the other from doing what the other wants. These are all realities for us. And Jesus is coming back too, which is a big one. Because when he comes back, there will inevitably be many who say, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know this when, when he's made it very clear. Look at 6 verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of uh, his land. Uh, These are pretty sweet words, right? What did Moses just accuse God of? Evil. You didn't deliver us at all. And God says, now I will show you my power in an even greater manner. And Pharaoh will drive y'all out. He won't want you to stay anymore by the time I'm done with him. I mean, what could God have said just, just for fun? What could he have said? You're done. Yeah, you want evil? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe Moses, your whining is too much. That's enough. I'm done with you. Or uh, did you just accuse me of evil? Um, let me show you a display of my power here for a minute. Um, Moses is very similar to us. We're called to something great, and we whine, grumble, complain, and show overall discontentment. What are some great things y'all are called to? I don't want to sound like some health, wealth, crazy, but everyone in this room has been called to some really great things. What are the great things you've been called to? Raising kids. Absolutely. Witnessing. Teaching kids. What else? Being a brother's keeper. Good husband. What else? Yep. Absolutely. What else? Yep. What else? There's a lot of great things we're called to. What else? Yeah. Honoring your parents. That doesn't stop when you're 14 or whatever. Each of you sitting here with parents are called to honor your parents. Yep. Yep. Did, did Jeff tell you to say that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. You said it more biblically. That's good. Yeah, God's called us to many, many great things, just like Moses. I mean, Moses, this is a great thing that Moses was called to. Yet Moses didn't say, all right, I'm your man. I mean, it, it was a, or he didn't even say, okay, with your power, I can do this. It was a full-on, I can't talk good. I, I, I'm not a good talker. Uh, this isn't going to work. I don't want to be in front of people. The, the magicians are, are more eloquent than I am. And then he runs out all these excuses, and he finally just says, just pick someone else. Just choose someone else. Just send someone else. And God is very patient with him, very lovingly brings him along and says, no, you can do this. And then he even more lovingly says, okay, Aaron, Aaron will be the guy who does the talking for you. I'll, I'll, I'll help you out here. And, um, but this, this whole grumbling and complaining and discontentment, God shows great mercy and tells us what will happen before it happens. Most of us know what will happen before it happens. I'm not talking about telling the future and getting your lotto numbers so you can not have any worries anymore, which is a farce. But he, he tells us what will happen. I mean, we know in large part what is in the future. And when those God-revealed things happen, a lot of times we just act like God has never spoken. God's mercy is really great because our need for His mercy is really great. God's mercy, God's grace is very great because our need for both His mercy and grace is very great. It's a regular thing that God would have to say, you deserve my wrath. You called me evil. You said I don't deliver at all. You deserve my wrath. But I will not give you what you deserve. Instead, you will receive mercy. What we're getting at here is there's a need for a sober mind as we walk in faithfulness and aim to put God's glory on display, to respond in the way that he tells us to respond, to speak the words that he tells us to speak, to be bold when he tells us to be bold, to be gentle when we're supposed to be gentle. All these things take a very sober mind because we can be intoxicated with thoughts that just aren't true. The opposite of being sober-minded is to have a mind that's intoxicated with something else, and it can be a myriad of other things. It can be doubt, it can be angst, it can be anxiety, it can be 
um, arrogance. I mean, we can be intoxicated with a number of things as opposed to what has God said? What are we going to walk in? What are we going to do? And what message is it that we're going to proclaim that he's given us to proclaim? Look at verses 2 through 8 in chapter 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. That means that they did not yet know him as Yahweh. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I mean, he's, he's saying for hundreds of years now, which is not much in my mind, but a lot in your mind, I have tended to every detail. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I want you to note in these verses God's unmatched, overwhelming, and exceedingly comforting words. He says all these things he's going to do, and he follows it up with, I am the Lord. When you consider what God's called you to do, it's good to follow it up, whatever it is, with, He is the Lord. There's no one above him. There's no one greater. There's no one that will keep him from accomplishing all of his purposes. And Isaiah says, I am the Lord and I will accomplish all my purposes, period. Nothing unseats him or distracts him from it. He is relational. They will get the promised land. He is good. This is not different from the message that God's revealing to us, his children sitting here now. Namely, I will deliver you. I will take you out of this world. You will hear me say, like Revelation 18, come out of her, my people. And until then, there will be challenges. You will face temporary rejection before receiving eternal deliverance. That's what God has told us as we sit right here. You are, Jesus has returned, but not completely. You're somewhere between the beginning of the end and the end of the end. And Christ's return is as sure as him saying, let there be light. It's that certain. And before Christ comes back to take his people home and establish new heavens and new earth, we will face temporary rejection before receiving eternal deliverance. It's the same thing that Israel was facing in Egypt. Look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But what happens? They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So you have this wonderfully comforting word from the Lord, this really good news. But how did Israel hear it? They had a hard heart. They didn't even hear what the good news as it was. What we're seeing here is that Moses relays the good news, and it says that um, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the way that their spirit was and the condition that they were in kept them from actually hearing what Moses was saying, which was what God just said, all this really, really good news. I'll bring you out of this slavery. I will put you into the promised land. I will be your God. This will all happen as a, as a, as a way of showing my might and my greatness. And I am the Lord. Moses goes and tells that to the people, and, it, and it's as though he wasn't even talking. They don't even listen. It's not that they even listened and rejected It's they didn't even listen. One of the most frustrating aspects of leadership is when those whom you are leading do not see good news as good. Have you ever tried to lead someone and encourage them and love them with truth and they don't see good news as good news, but they see it as totally opposite or they just don't listen because of their condition? You're saying God offers redemption. God offers salvation. God will deliver you from that sin. God will help you in your weakness. The Spirit intercedes with words that go deeper than something you can even understand. But because of their condition and the condition of their spirit, they don't even listen to you. They don't even hear the good news as good. 
Just like Israel, many of us allow our broken spirit and our harsh slavery to cause our ears to be closed to that which God brings for our comfort and our guidance. Have you ever had just a time where you're in a bad mood, you have had a bad week, work is just eating your lunch, and you go to the Word and you read something that's just absolutely glorious, and you're like, nothing. That does nothing for me. My conditions are so poor right now. I'm so frustrated right now that that doesn't lift me at all. Have you ever tried to pray like, Lord, lift my spirits, help me, help me, but your conditions make it such that you have sort of hardened your heart in a sense to what the Lord is doing, and it's like nothing. You feel like your prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling? This is a real possibility, a bad possibility, a threat. And this is one reason why many men will change the message. Many men who are called like Moses to proclaim with clarity a message that God has given them. This is good news and the people need to hear it. They will take that message because the people respond the way they did to Moses. They didn't even listen because of their conditions. And they'll take that message and they will change it to where it's not even the gospel anymore. What I'm getting at is this. No one wants to hear that their hardest days are before them. You want to go to work wearing a t-shirt. Your hardest days are before you. Jesus is risen. You'll probably get some, a stapler thrown at you or something. Um, no one wants to hear that their hardest days are before them. No one wants to hear that they are due the wrath of God if they are outside of Christ. Like if, if, a non, if an unbelieving person comes to you and wants to talk to you about your faith and they tell you about sin that they are steeped in, is there not a part of you that's like, should I tell them about God's wrath? They're not going to like that. But what does God tell you to tell them? The gospel is good news because it delivers you from sin. It's good news about Jesus and the finished work that he has accomplished on the cross. If you don't see a need for the cross, you don't see a need for redemption, you don't see a need for forgiveness, you don't see a need for reconciliation with God, you're going to change that message and be like, well, Jesus loves you anyway. You'll stop right there. Jesus loves you no matter what. That's it. I don't want to go any further because I might offend you. No one wants to hear that sin rages and Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and destroy. No one wants to hear that they're not to be surprised that the fiery trial comes upon them as though something strange were happening to them. No one wants to hear that friendship with the world is enmity with God and that you can't have it both ways. That's part of the good news that you're called to proclaim. But sometimes people don't want to hear things like that. Like Moses goes to them and says, God said he will deliver us. He's going to come against Egypt with great acts of judgment. And he's our God. He, said, he, he finished the phrase by saying, I am the Lord. But they didn't even listen because they didn't see the good news as good news. And a lot of times men will find themselves in the same place that Moses was in. And they'll say, this isn't working. So they'll change the message to make it more savory to someone who is in a hard place. But sometimes they're in that hard place because God put them there just like he did with Israel. Israel's in a hard place because God put them in Egypt. He made their conditions worse. He brought them low so they would see their great need for redemption and for being saved and for being brought out from underneath slavery. Someone may be steeped in sin and enslaved to the flesh, and God may have brought them to that point so that you can tell them the good news, and they may not want to hear it, but that doesn't change what you're supposed to tell them. They may not get it at first. It may take time. It may take generations. Who knows? But you proclaim what God tells you to proclaim. You don't change the message. So some will change the message to say, Jesus only wants you to be happy. If you'll just receive him, you won't have to deal with all these hard circumstances. I've sat in services where I've heard that. You tired of a crummy life? It'll be better if you just turn to Jesus. Nothing will be hard anymore. It's like, really? What about the fiery trials? They'll explain that you need forgiveness, but not that you need to be reconciled to a very real God who you have transgressed. There's a book, I've cited it before. I feel like I've cited it the last three weeks. Maybe we should read it. Uh, God is the gospel. And he makes this point of saying, you can't just stress the need for forgiveness without understanding that the point of the gospel isn't just that you're forgiven. The point is that the gospel shows you how you're forgiven so that you're reconciled to God. So the end of the gospel is God. The point of it all and sharing it is that someone might be reconciled to God through Jesus. That's it. 
If you just stop with, you don't want Jesus to be mad at you anymore, that's not enough. The point is God. That's, that's the extent to which the gospel is going. That's the aim. That's the end. That's the finish line. God. Not anything before that. So you can just say, you're a sinner, you're bad, you need forgiveness. And you can say nothing about being reconciled to God. It changes the message because why would I need to be reconciled to God? Well, because his wrath is towards unrighteousness because your unrighteous living suppresses the truth. Wrath? What did I do to him? And all of a sudden it gets uncomfortable. So you can change the message, just modify it in simple ways to where it's really not the gospel at all anymore. It's this watered down really self-serving thing. And it's self-serving to the person sharing it because they don't have to be as offensive. And it's self-serving to the person hearing it because um, maybe that's what they prefer to hear as opposed to a God that they've wronged. Yeah. 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 Yeah, making disciples. It's a picture of making disciples. Being fishers of men takes much patience and much time. Um, so many will go out of their way not to offend you. Moses could have just gone way out of his way not to offend Israel, um, which is hard because the gospel is a double-edged sword which pierces deep. So the only way not to offend someone is to share something other than the gospel and then call it the gospel. You can't share the gospel and expect to not offend anyone. It's offensive. It's hard. It tells me how big of a sinner I am and how much I need Jesus. It tells me how, how far I fall short of the expectation that God requires. It tells me how it's only in Christ that you are counted righteous. You don't have, like you're not at 85% righteousness and you just need to kick it up 15%. You're unrighteous altogether. None is righteous, no, not one. It tells me how desperately I need a Savior. I need something outside of me, and it takes it all out of my control. And that's uncomfortable. So the call on Moses and on us is that no matter the circumstance, you say what God has told you to say. You have to know what He has said. You have to know what He's proclaimed. Don't be a jerk. You can say something lacking complete gentleness. Gentleness is... um, Sometimes men have a tendency to think that gentleness gets in the way of the truth. So you'll be like harsh with your kids. Don't do that. Where was gentleness in that? Well, if I'm gentle, they won't get it. But not true. Um, Paul Tripp has a great point that he makes where he says, gentleness never jeopardizes the truth. Gentleness never, ever jeopardizes the truth. However, gentleness keeps the truth from being jeopardized by harshness and insensitivity. Gentleness keeps the truth from being jeopardized by harshness and insensitivity. So the call is no matter the circumstance, you say what God has told you to say, and you say it in the manner that he's told you to say it. Jesus reserved more harsh words for some than others. It's not only harsh words. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, we can make a mess even out of the truth. <laughs> yeah. There's... Um, there's great wisdom in that, and, and, and it's hard. I mean, we, you don't muster wisdom either. James says, anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given him. So if you lack wisdom, you don't just muster it. You don't just reach down deep inside into your heart, which is deceitful above all else. You go to the Lord and say, Lord, please give me wisdom because I need it, and I'll only get it out, outside of myself from, from you. Turn to Mark 8.38. just sort of helps bring these thoughts together because it needs it. Mark eight thirty eight. This is Jesus. And it's interesting because in Mark 6 and in Mark 8, he's just told them not to harden their hearts, which that's what happened with Pharaoh. And, he, and he's, he's talking about his death and his resurrection, and he's talking about what, really what the gospel is and doing something for the sake of the gospel. And he goes in in 838, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what it's getting at is sometimes you may not want to share what God has told you to share due to shame. 
And Jesus gives us a very sobering warning here. The, the one who's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he cites the, the way the generation is because the generation that is sinful and adulterous is not often going to say, thank you for that wonderful gospel that you just shared with me. It'll, in large part, maybe be rejected. And, um, and here he says, don't be ashamed or the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Now turn back to Exodus. Six thirteen or 10 through 13, I'm sorry. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of, this, out of his land. Go do it again. <laughs> That'd go the first time. Go do it again. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh's king of Egypt, about Pharaoh king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Essentially, God says, "Go do it again and say what I told you to say." And Moses says, "Okay, here's the deal. Um, all these people that you're going to lead out of Egypt, they're not listening to me. So when I go to Pharaoh on their behalf, you think Pharaoh's really going to listen to me?" And he's got this very seemingly good argument. But who's he argue, who is he arguing with? God. Yeah. That's never a win situation. God tells Moses and Aaron essentially what we've just talked about, that their obedience is not dependent upon if they think the thing commanded will work or not. Your obedience to God is not based on whether or not you look at what God has said and said, I think that'll work, or ah, there's no chance that's going to work. That's not what obedience is based on. You do what he tells you to do. You say what he tells you to say. Essentially, he reminds them that the people of Israel are not God. Moses and Aaron are not God, and Pharaoh is not God. He's saying, I am. I'm God. I'm Yahweh. I'm King of kings and Lord of lords. You do what I say. And look at verse 14 through 20. This is a genealogy. For the sake of time, I'll ask you to read verses 14 through 20 on your own. Um, just for the sake of time. And you better all read it. Um, interestingly, uh, in verse 20... It's not until verse 20 that Moses and Aaron's parents are, are mentioned by name. Isn't that interesting? Did you, did you know they were brothers? Moses and Aaron are brothers. And their parents were, uh, look at verse 20. The, uh, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And Aaron's actually older than Moses by a few years, 133 and 137 when they did this, I believe. So um, uh, there's this picture here that it's interesting that in verse 20, um, Moses and Aaron's parents aren't mentioned by name until that point. And it makes me wonder what God may have in store for my children and my grandchildren. Really, it makes me hope for uh, God-honoring greatness in the lives of future generations. No one knew who Amram was. How many times have you heard anything about Amram or whatever his name is? I can't ever say it. Amram, 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 Amram. There's about four different ways you could say it. Either way, we don't, it doesn't roll off our tongue like Moses or Aaron, because we're not as familiar with him. But it makes me hope for God-honoring greatness in the lives of future generations. Then look at verses 21 through 27. It goes on and then uh, on the uh, genealogy. And then in verse 26, these are, the, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. So don't get them confused. That's the point God's making. This Moses and this Aaron, I want you to know who did this because I want you to know, yeah, yeah, the bonehead Moses, yeah. The Moses who's whining, that's the guy who I use to bring my people out of Egypt. He doesn't want you to uh, confuse them with anybody else. Look at verse 28 through 30. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Not a version of it, not what you think is applicable. Tell him all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, Moses may be referring to the incident here with Zipporah, where, she, where Moses was going to die because he was disobedient about not circumcising both of his sons, and then she takes a flint and circumcises one and touches his feet with the blood of the circumcised. It was really weird. Um, the whole thing was quite awkward. Um, but the point was that uh, he was 
only partially obedient, which was disobedient. And because of that, the Lord's wrath was kindled against him to the point where he was going to die. And his wife had to intercede. And so I think when he says, I'm of uncircumcised lips, he's thinking about this thing that just happened for us two chapters before. Um, uh, And he's likely referring to the fact that he feels, again, unable to speak. That's been a problem with Moses from the get-go. He's like, I'm just unable to speak. I'm uncircumcised lips. Uh, And he feels unclean and unworthy to rightly tend to that which God has called him to. Have you ever been there? Unable, unclean, unworthy to do what God's called you to do. That's that's fairly normal, I think, for us to, to feel that way. Now, he feels unclean. He feels unworthy. While humility is hugely appropriate, and I think we're seeing humility here, I think there's a warning for us here as well, that while humility is hugely appropriate, there's a fine line where that humility, which says I'm unworthy, can become futility, which says I'm not capable. Y'all hear that? There's a difference. There's a, there can be a, a fine line where you go from humility, which says I'm unworthy, to futility, which says I'm not able. God doesn't call you to things you're not able to do if he's helping you do them. He doesn't take all of the able ones and do something with them. He makes people able. He does, he, that's what he's doing with Moses. He's equipping him. He equips the saints for a work of ministry. If he's called you to a work of ministry, it's because you are a saint that he has equipped you to do the work of ministry. So humility can very quickly become true idleness, true disobedience. Humility can go into futility, which says, what's the point in doing anything? I stink. I'm a loser. I know how you can see this backdrop of darkness and your desperate need for redemption and your desperate need for a savior. And you could say, man, I just, I stink. I'm horrible. I'm not going to do anything. I don't want to mess anything up. That's futility. That's not humility. At one point it may have been humility, but then it crosses a line. Humility says, God, I need you. Futility says, God, there is no point. It's not right for Christians to feel worthless. Why? Why? Why is it not right for Christians to feel worthless? Yeah, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And where's your worth found? Christ, the Lamb, and another. Your worth is great because it's found in another. We're no longer driven by our emotions. I feel unworthy. I feel incapable. Okay? Confess that in humility. We're not driven by our emotions because my emotions do not define my reality. Christ does. God commands and we obey because he equips us for a work of ministry as God. If we only obey because we think we can do good or do well by our own efforts, that means that we're placing ourselves at the center of God's command as opposed to submitting to the one whom the command belongs to. It's like saying, huh, I think I could do that. Okay, I'll obey. I'm so prone to that. When God calls me to something that I think I generally stink at, I'm not real quick to say, yeah, this will be awesome. But if it's something I, maybe I think I'm sort of good at, I'll be like, all right, let's do this thing, God. And there's this arrogance about it where you become central to this command, which comes from God, not you. And it's self-serving and self-seeking. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. I'm actually going to read through verse 13. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Thanks for the help. That's a big thing. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let people, the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply many, my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. It's great. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it before Pharaoh and it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Ooh. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians, magicians, I just made up a word. That was good. The magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Um, Okay, aside from just being awesome, that is so, can't you just see Moses and Aaron like, oh, high-fiving each other? Like, we didn't even know that was going to happen. God surprised us too, you know, Um, where the staff swallows up the other ones. It's a pretty cool uh, situation there. Uh, But uh, the magicians, there's a point here that the magicians could do magic, but they didn't have power over it. They were utilizing some other source of power. It may have been evil. It may have been a dark spirit. It may have been an illusion. But the point is they did not have ultimate power over this thing they were harnessing to try and prove that they were like God. And God, who has ultimate power over all things, including this display of power, shows it by causing Aaron's staff to swallow up all of theirs. Like they left there without their staffs. That's pretty funny. Like they're all walking in all mighty with their staffs and they're walking out like, uh, mine got eaten by his. It's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Psalm 95 says, uh, do not harden your hearts. When we see Pharaoh's heart hardened, we shouldn't just say, oh, what an idiot. Should, he should know after seeing the staff turn to a serpent and eat everybody else's that God is the one true God. We shouldn't look at him and just act like he's a fool. But Psalm 95 verses 7 through 8 tells us not to harden our hearts. So I'll close with this question. Why would we ever harden our hearts when God reveals his will and his plan? What would cause us to harden our hearts when God reveals what his will and his plan is? Fear? What? Pride? Absolutely. Yeah. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yeah. Yeah, God, that seems like a stretch. Really? Now I'm dismayed. Yeah. Yeah. If the opposite of hardening your heart is obedience, which if he's calling you to do something you weren't doing, that's a change in the way that he's calling you to live. And, and that may mean differences in your life. It may mean struggle, trial, being uncomfortable. I think that we would harden our hearts when God reveals his will and his plan if we're more concerned with our will and our plans. Like my pride, like, God, I had a pretty good plan here. This was pretty awesome. I have a spreadsheet. And God says, you do this. And then um, sometimes pride creeps in because, well, I was concerned with my plan. Sometimes fear. I had this thing where I didn't have to be fearful of it. I, I was pretty certain I could do this. And God says, no, I want you to do this. All of a sudden, I'm fearful because I was more concerned with my plan and my will. So the warning is uh, Psalm 95, don't harden your hearts when you see what happens. Because it's interesting, because what does Israel do in the wilderness in Meridian? Or Meribin, sorry? Meribah? They harden their hearts against God. Next week, we're going to climb into the plagues. And to view the plagues rightly, we, we have to import our senses. We have to climb into it. We have to consider what the gnats and the flies and the frogs and the blood and the stench and just the horrible circumstance would be like. So I want to encourage y'all to spend some time personally and maybe with your families reading through these next few chapters in preparation, starting with the second half of chapter 7 and into 8, 9, uh, and 10, and 11, you know, and 12 if you're feeling ambitious. Um, because it's good for us to be able to have an understanding of what's going on so we can climb in and really experience it as a read that word from God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time tonight. Please guide us um, in this word as we go on our way. Help us to never jeopardize your gospel. Help us to never change the words you've told us to share. Help us to never compromise its clarity and its fidelity and the truth with something that we see as more savory, more palatable, more comfortable, less offensive. And Lord, in that, 
my prayer for this body is that we wouldn't be a bunch of jerks about it. When we have a, a truth that's from you that's hard, let us share it in the right way. I confess in front of everyone here, I have a tendency towards lacking gentleness. I have to really beg the Spirit to produce in me that fruit of gentleness. Because I hate when I see these truths jeopardized. I hate when I see the gospel watered down. So help us to battle that rightly, gently, and humbly by not watering it down, by not changing the message, by speaking clearly that which you tell us to speak clearly at the time you tell us to speak it. What I'm thinking about how good news and these well-chosen words that are God-breathed when they're shared at the right time, how Proverbs says they're like apples of gold and settings of silver, that they bring great comfort and guidance and direction to those who need it. Lord, thank you for not letting us continue to just meander and wander aimlessly, but that you've spoken to us, you've, you've captured our hearts, you've given us the Spirit, and you've given us your Word that we might have any understanding at all. I'm thankful that we sit here knowing that we have an eternal purpose and that as we face different temporary rejections like Israel did in Egypt, that we would uh, persevere knowing uh, our eternal deliverance and uh, the existence we'll have eternally with a very mighty God who's worthy of all praise and worship. Lord, I pray that we would eagerly anticipate worshiping you eternally. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.